once you get to the top of the tower, your job is not finished. Your job has only just started. And I think that's the issue that a lot of leaders, that when they fail, is they think they've got to the top and they can kick back, put their feet up, and all the hard work's done. It's the other way around. Once you are a leader, you actually have to work even harder to prove why you should be there and lead the team in a proper manner. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers, and leaders. With thanks to our partner, Connect Now, Elevate brings you the best tools, thinking, and strategies to elevate your results. For more information about how Connect Now can make moving easier for your clients, visit connectnow.com.au. And to get new episodes of Elevate directly to your inbox, sign up at eliteagent.com slash subscribe. Here is your host, Samantha McLean. Hey, hey everyone, it's Sam here. My guest today on Elevate has extensive experience in both the Australian and New Zealand real estate industry, leading growth initiatives and auction services for one of the country's largest real estate groups. As head of growth for Australia and New Zealand, as well as chief auctioneer for First National Real Estate, he's been instrumental in recruiting new offices for the group and providing auction training and weekly auction events. With deep insight into opportunities and challenges facing real estate professionals today, he is perfectly positioned to be our next guest on a series known as the Leadership Diaries, which is all about providing guidance to upcoming leaders. So today, it's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Matthew Harvey. Thank you, Sam. Wow, what an introduction. Can I copy that and paste that into my LinkedIn profile? That was fantastic. Everyone says that. (laughs) I must have a knack for writing a good intro, just like some people have a knack for writing uh, good property descriptions, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Very good. Thank you. So you recently came back. I mentioned Australia and New Zealand, and you recently came back from New Zealand, I think, from a principal's retreat. How was that? I did. It was fantastic. We've got about 40-odd officers in New Zealand, and they get together once a year, which is great. It's a principals and managers retreat, which is something a little bit different, which I think is great. In the way New Zealand is structured, a lot of people own multiple offices over there and will plant managers into each business. It's a different model over there, and we encourage these principals to bring their managing partners along to these retreats as well. We had the head of research from CoreLogic speak. There was a a fair bit there, a little bit of ahead of us in New Zealand in relation to anti-money laundering and the regulations around that. I know something's coming next year in Australia with that. So we had some presentations around that. And we also utilised some of our top performers over there and top principals in relation to recruitment, sales tactics, you know, and we brought over our national performance manager, Ted Bateo from Australia to run through some real nitty gritty numbers, profit loss, balance sheet, you know, above and below the line. So it was a really good couple of days. And then it was a bit of fun. We had drag queen bingo on the uh, on the Wednesday night, as well as some charity auctions, and you know we raised some money for the Burns Unit in Auckland as well over there. So it was a fabulous couple of days. Yeah, amazing. Now I hear a little bird tells me actually that you and I have got something in common, which is a bit of an unusual an unusual thing. But I hear you're a bit of a Green Bay Packers fan. I am a massive Green Bay Packers fan. How are you a Green Bay Packers fan? That's something interesting. That we're few and far between in Australia. That's a long story, a very long story, but I do love a good Vince Lombardi quote. So what's your favourite? I don't have a Vince Lombardi quote per se. I'm a mad Aaron Rodgers fan. I'm, as I said, I'm a little bit disappointed with how that's I don't know if you can see in the background behind me. I actually got to go to Lambeau Field a couple of years ago and behind me is the game day program that I bought from that game. You wouldn't believe it as a Green Bay Packers fan for anyone else listening. 
Aaron Rodgers has been the bee's knees there. He actually got injured the week before I got to Lambeau Field and didn't even play in that game. So I was deeply gutted when I got there, but it was an experience nonetheless. Tell me, did you actually get into Lambeau or were you outside having a barbecue? No, no, I was, I was in the game. I got tickets with some colleagues. We, we take our top elite performers across to America every year to a conference over there. There's a conference called NAR. I think you've been there before. We caught up there once a couple of times. And it just happened to be in Chicago, which wasn't that far from Green Bay. And I rallied up the owner and his wife of our Bacchus Marsh office, one of the guys from Mildura, and we trekked all the way up, got a big Chevy Suburban van and drove all the way up to Green Bay. We bought tickets yeah. off Subhub and we sat, we got some great photos. It was absolutely freezing. They don't have seats. It's those old school benches. We did manage to sort of float around and there was big parties at the front of me. I got myself on Green Bay radio as well. They had a big theme going and I was an Aussie that was coming over. They were throwing a gridiron ball through and I used a rugby pass to get it through the hole. And it was just an unbelievable experience. Yeah, wow. That's probably like bucket list kind of stuff, yeah. I did get to go to a game in Boston and it was Tom Brady playing Aaron Rodgers. That was pretty cool, Gillette Stadium. And a couple of members of myself went and actually tailgated for an hour or two. And we got some phenomenal videos where we just walked up to a tailgate and said, hey, we're Aussies, can we join you? And they just were opened their arms and welcomed us <laughs> in. We had a party and we were drinking and eating calzones and watching football and it was you know, a phenomenal experience. I bet. But back to the program for today. Today's the Leadership Diaries, but you actually come from a real estate family with your father, I think, Philip, being in the industry for like over 30 years, which like, you know, I only recently found this out about you. So it's an incredible story. How did the exposure from a young age to real estate shape your career today? Yeah. So my old man bought a real estate office back uh, early, late 80s, early 90s, and it became a first national office straight away. There's actually some family photos floating around somewhere. I'm not that old, by the way, so I was about 10 when that was the case, but people may remember that our listing back in the day, we didn't have digital printing and things like that. So there's actually photos of my sister and myself. We used to have to walk across the road to the local shopping centre, pick up the 30 photos of the front of the house that were printed by Kodak, bring them back and actually you who glue them onto a brochure and that was the brochures, you know, back in the day. And that's how we earn our pocket money. So I was exposed to that at an early age. My dad worked very hard six days a week in the office, you can imagine, and a lot of people listening probably worked six or seven days a week. I saw the freedom it gave him. I saw what he did for the community. He was very heavily involved, whether it was the local rugby club, he was involved in Chamber of Commerce, a whole, you know, the local bowls club he was involved in. He was up there every second weekend presenting the, the local, the chickens for the prize winners and things like that. And I saw, you know, at an early age what real estate could do. Not only it's, it's you know, from a transactional side of things, but what it could do to assist people you know, with their dreams. And I learned from an early age, you work hard in this industry and you're rewarded. And I loved what he did, the freedom. I'm a very energetic person. For those that know me, they, I'm self-diagnosed ADD. I like to be out there sitting behind a desk in an office is not me. And I love that real estate, you're out there in front of people, you're meeting, you're talking. You know, it got to the stage with my dad where we refused to go to the local shopping centre with him because you'd go to get a loaf of bread and milk and you'd be there for an hour and a half because he knew everyone and he'd take the time to stop and talk to everyone. And that's how he did business. And funnily enough, he officially retired a couple of months ago. He's 77, 78. And then he rang me two weeks later and booked me in for two auctions. So, you know, real estate is one of those things that once it's in your blood, it never leaves. And I thank you for that. I've worked my way up all the way through, you know, from the age of 10 years old. I went off and did a few other things and went overseas, but came back and realized, you know, I'd love to follow in his footsteps. I've gone a different path. I worked with him for about six or seven years. 
and that sort of made our relationship a little bit torrid in some respects because obviously I was a debt to the business as well as what I was doing. And I was probably a little bit young at the time. And I was fortunate enough that, you know, I became an auctioneer and I had the opportunity to go down a different path in the real estate space. But he's one of my best mates. He's my mentor of mine and I speak to him every day. And, you know, we still shoot the breeze about real estate, you know, even now that I'm 43, you know, 33 years on. So. How fantastic. You just said you went down a different path, but was it your energy and your love for, you know, like doing things that drew you to auctions? Now, funny enough, it's a story. We were a very auction-orientated office, and that's where I learned it. Funny enough, when I came and did the corporate role, I actually never realized, and this is 15 years ago, so you're talking sort of 2008, I never realized people didn't get vendor paid advertising because the agency I worked in with my father, it was an auction-orientated agency, so we auctioned pretty much everything, and, you know, you basically got vendor paid marketing. And funnily enough, the story goes, our chief auctioneer at the time, an old friend of mine, Michael McCaffrey, came up to me one day, I think I was 27, he said, hey, you're kind of loud, you're kind of funny, you know, you're energetic. Have you ever thought about auctioneering? And I said, never thought about it. And he goes, right, I'm going to enter you into the REI New South Wales Novice Auctioneers Competition. And it was about three weeks down the track. He sort of half trained me up. I won the heat. I went through to the state. Unfortunately, I didn't win the state final that year. There was a very, very good country auctioneer that done a lot of chattels and, you know, clearing sales and things that was very good. But it just ignited a passion inside me for auctioneering. And at the time, I was probably a bit young in the area I was from a seller. And, and when I say young, you're never too young to be real estate. But maturity-wise, I look back now and go, I probably wasn't mature enough and this was the right decision for me. And that's where I went down that path of auctioneering and approached First National. It's a funny story, actually, if you don't mind me talking about it. I actually approached Ray Ellis, our CEO, back in oh, what I've been late 2007, it was, saying, look, Ray, you know, I've spoken to my father. I think I'm going to go a different path. I'd love to do this auctioneering. I'd love a corporate job. I'd met Ray a couple of times. He'd been there for a few years. And Ray said, sorry, Matt, I haven't got anything for you and hung up on me. And I thought, oh, okay, all right, that's the way to put my fire out. So funny enough, about three months later, he rang me and said, look, Matt, I'm sending one of my guys to come and see you. I think we've got something for you. And, and then it went from there. But funny enough, yeah, it didn't stop me wanting to go in that path. But it's a it's a funny story because Ray's a good friend and colleague and mentor of mine now and has been for a number of years. But yeah, the initial conversation was, sorry, Matt, I haven't got anything for you and, you know, see you later. And so anyway, but it's all worked out since then. And yeah, I've been there, well, 15 and a half years now. Amazing. And so one of your big responsibilities at First National, is, as I understand anyway, is articulating the value prop and recruiting new officers. But I recently learned that First National is quite different to your traditional franchise, which, you know, like I was mistaken by, and I'm sure a lot of other people are. So what do you see as the major differences between First National and some of the other, you know, traditional franchises in the industry? Yeah, look, we originally were set up as a marketing cooperative. We call ourselves an adaptive cooperative now. So our board of directors are actually made up of principals that own offices around the country. So our chairman owns a very good office of ours in Werribee, Victoria. Our ex-chairman is from Yamba up north in New South Wales, and the one before that is still on the board. He owns our office in Cairns. So our board that report and work closely with CEO are actually made up of principals. They're not executive directors or anything on those lines. We're not a franchise, so a lot of people don't realise that. We are that marketing adaptive cooperative, so we don't charge a franchise fee. So that's sort of where we're very dissimilar in when it comes to membership. It is a membership-based organisation. We're non-for-profit, and we have a couple of different levels of membership, but we charge a flat fee. So... That's very advantageous for a lot of our members because we're very big on building their business. So my role is to bring them into the network and we've got a whole team of business growth managers run by a great colleague of mine who's been around a long time, Stacey Kelly, 
and her team are there to assist these officers in building their businesses up, achieving their business goals. And if that involves growing their GCI from 500 to a million to, you know, like one of our top officers that does eight to nine million, you know, that's great. But they're not punished. You know, they're not paying a fee on top of that. I suppose the other side to what we offer is we don't demand that any of our officers use any products and services specifically. As long as they use our brand corporately correctly, you know, and do everything above board and ethically speaking and like, we are offer a range. We are a, a buffet or smorgasbord of products and services, but you take as little, as much as a little as you like. We're here to plug and play with your business because we understand that every business is different. Some businesses really want to run a very stringent property management department and build that up and have a small sales department. Some are big sales departments with small property management. We've got some that are very heavy in commercial, some that do strata. We've got some that do holiday letting. So we're just there as a partner to plug and play into these businesses how they see fit. And they plug and play as much into us as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's just a flat fee no matter how much commission you make. Yep. So for budgetary purposes, it actually works out quite well because you know you're paying a certain amount every month. That's it. It just sits there. It's like a subscription fee. From an onboarding process and part of what I do, we offer a very good attractive onboarding package for people. So we understand that some people are coming into the network, taking the next stage in their real estate career, whether that's a small independent that's looking to grow and partner with a brand, you know, be a part of something, the training, the awards, everything like that, or whether they're an individual agent that's gone, right, I've done sort of five, 10 years, I want to take the next step, I want to go into business ownership, we'll put together a very attractive sort of package that leads them into levels of membership, you know, to guide them down that path. We've had some incredible people from First National on this podcast. I mean, Chris Hanley, for one, he's been, you know, a great friend to elite agent over the years. And one of the things we love about him are his core values. What are some of the core values that you talk to new members about? Like, how would you describe the culture within the group? Yeah, it's one of those ones that everyone always says this, and it's hard to display this to people, but we are a family. That, that's the best way to put it. I can tell you stories where Karen, that is a director in our manly office on the northern beaches of Sydney, often holidays with our ex-chairman in Yamba and his wife and his kids and the kids are friends you know, I recently did a trip up to Coffs Harbour and was floating around there, heading back via Foster. And I rang the guy in Foster and said, look, I'm coming through. I'm doing some recruitment. You know, catch up with you guys. Where's a good place to stay? And he said, Matt, stay at my house. And so, you know, I end up staying with one of the principals at his beautiful big house on the beach in Foster. You know, that is sort of the fabric of who we are. We are a family. People are willing to share anything and everything across our network. You know, we've got our office in Bathurst, who managed to come across to one of those American trips with us with our office in Bacchus Marsh, they're both husband and wife teams, didn't know each other from a bar of soap, are now best friends because they've realised they've got a very similar business and any time they have a problem or something they want to discuss, they pick up the phone, they know full well that that other office has been through that. So we've got this sort of caring, sharing nature where everyone, we want everyone in this network to succeed and every member in this network wants everyone else to succeed as well. And that's sort of that family affair. I'll give you a good example. We run a very big convention every year. It's in May, normally somewhere between five, 600 people. We try and entice all our new members to come along so they get an understanding of who they are. We had a new member join us up in Queensland, up your way earlier this year. And, we, and part of the join package, we gave them a couple of tickets to come along. And he'd come from another very big franchise. I won't mention who it was. And he was in shock and awe that it didn't matter whether you wrote $100,000 or you're part of Chris Hanley's business with multi-million dollar writers in Byron Bay there. Everyone was happy to chat and talk about what they do. And there was no egos, nothing like that. It was just, this is who we are. And there was no, I'm better than you. I'm above you. I'm, you know, this is where it was. And he 
couldn't fathom that that was sort of who we were. And you explain it to them over and over again that everyone is on the same page. Until you see an experience, you don't really understand it. And you just got to look at the staff. Ray, our CEO, has been there 20 years. You know our Chief Communications Officer, Stuart's been there 17. I'm 15 and a half. So there is a friendly community sort of family-orientated feel to who we are and what we do. That's lovely. Well, speaking of family, we are here for the Leadership Diaries, which is a series I've been doing for, I don't know, the last four years, and, and I keep threatening to write a book. So I figured with all of your experience in the industry, you'd be a great candidate. I ask very similar questions to everyone, a bit like Tim Ferriss's Tools of Titans, and I know you haven't seen the questions. They're rapid fire, so are you ready? Yep, sure, hit me. The first one's easy because I think you've already answered it, but let's go. What was your first job and what did it teach you? My first job actually was working in the chicken shop before that. So before my, I worked in the chicken shop and I learned that there is a big chunk of bit of fat in the back of a chicken you have to rip out before you stuff it and put it in the cooker. But I learned very much during the piece about cooking chickens. So I learned hard and how to work and work you know, long hours in a chicken shop. Yeah, I was going to say that's not the most glamorous chicken job either because I worked at KFC and even I didn't have to do that. Okay, what's one daily routine or habit that you rely on to stay productive as a leader? Me, I go to the gym every afternoon if I'm not traveling. So for me, my phone, and it's on silent here, it rings, it buzzes all day long. And that's just my vice. I used to play a lot of rugby, a lot of cricket. I've got a lot of energy to get out. So for me, it's usually 5, 5.30 in the afternoon. As soon as I can, I'm at the gym. The phone stays in the car. There'll be the occasional video that someone takes of me in the gym, posts it, but I would never take my phone into the gym. That is my hour. Even colleagues will ring me at 5.30 and say, hey, gym boy, you know, give me a call back when you're in the car. But for me, I can have the worst day. My wife is hilarious. She thinks I'm bipolar. She thinks that, you know, if I'm in a bad mood, she says, just go to the gym, get out of you, and I come home and I'm a different person. So for me, you need something just outside. I work from home a lot and travel, so I need something that gets me away from the computer, the phone. And for me, that's just going to the gym and just flushing it out of me, get those endorphins going. And I'm a new person every time. If I don't go... I've been a bit sick the last week or two and I've had a week off. It just turns me into a Grinch. Yeah, I know. It's always good to get the endorphins going, especially if you've been sitting for a while. But this is an interesting question for you, this next one, because I know you just said you travel around a lot and sometimes your schedule is all sorts. So how do you prioritize your time on a daily basis? And what does the first hour, hour and a half look like for you generally of a day? So I sort of start pretty early in the morning because I know that people won't call me too early. I'm also fortunate that you in Queensland, you're an hour behind as well, so I get that little bit extra time. For me, I'm very, very organised. I've got two young kids. I've obviously got auctions on the weekend as well as my travel, so I'm very, very regimented and scheduled from everything I do. And I learned this when I was a salesperson. I used to do a lot of Lee Woodward training, other sales training. I have an ideal week and I have things that plug and play in there. And if someone needs to see me or I need to do appointments, I have to plug and play to that. But To start the day, I basically, I'm down here at eight o'clock in my little bunker. I've got my coffee. I've got my screens. I'll get through everything that I haven't covered from the night before, but I usually try and have every email answered the night before. And then I come in fresh and go, right, what else is on my agenda, you know, for today? And then I'm ready. Before it's even nine o'clock, I've got a whole lot of stuff out of the way and I'm productive moving forward. Amazing. What's one low-cost tool that you've used lately that's been a game changer for operations and why? I I shouldn't say this, but... I'm using ChatGPT a lot. No shame in that. Like it's free and it's so simple to use it. It's one of the windows open on my computer permanently. And it might be for, you know, we use external companies and other people to write recruitment EDMs and things like that. And 
you know, I've used it to help train some of my guys in relation to sales dialogues too. And I just cut and paste and drop it into chat GPT and it spits something out. You know, we're writing our strategy for next year in there and I actually uploaded and I thought, mm, my wording's all right. I'm a salesperson, but my wording's not as good as what I would like, not as good as what your introduction for me would be like, uh, was like earlier on. And I plug and play into chat GPT and it works an absolute treat. So that's the little cheeky I use all the time. So it makes me sound more a wordsmith than what I really am. <laughs> it is the great leveler. You can be university educated without being university educated or communicate like you are. Anyway. All right. What is your favorite question to ask someone in a job interview? And what does it tell you about the person? I love this. So this is quirky. So I asked this at the very end. And I should ask you this, Sam. I should throw it back on you. So I'm going to throw this rapid fire question back on you. At the end of every interview, I ask this question. You have to answer it with the very first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. So the mm -hmm. question is, if you could swim in a pool of anything, what would it be? Dolphins. Okay, dolphins. And I ask you to elaborate. So why would you swim in a pool with dolphins? I don't know. I just have a dolphin thing. And I did swim in a pool with dolphins once, and it was a really amazing experience. So there you go. So it's an interesting one. I've had people say beer. I've had champagne. I had someone say a swim in a pool of love. I had someone say swim in a pool of, and I'll use, it was a profanity, which I then asked why would you swim in that? And he says, I deal with that stuff on a daily basis. It's always just a very intriguing question to see where their mind goes with a rapid fire question like that. And it always sort of, interviews can be very serious and it kind of sort of breaks the ice at the very end and you get a bit more of a, I find with interviews, and I've done a lot in the last 12 to 18 months, people have become very good at doing interviews. So what you perceive in the interview is very well trained. They know how to answer all the questions and say all the right things. But you need to try and break down that barrier. And normally the interview will go for five or 10 minutes after that because it sort of opens their personality up a bit to some more questions and then you get to see the real insight to who they are. Yeah. If you want to know the answer to my question is Skittles. I'm obsessed with Skittles as much as I like the gym and healthy and everything. The candy Skittles, I even stole on Halloween night. My son got some Skittles from a house and I took it out of his thing the other night and said, I'll take those. So my answer is I'd like to swim in a pool of Skittles. <laughs> that would be... Colourful and messy. It would be very messy, true, but I'd be able to way through, I think. Yeah. Okay, I've modified this question slightly because normally I say, you know, onboarding new people, but you're actually onboarding new agents. So I'm going to ask the question in terms of like, how do you actively onboard new agents and help them understand the culture of First National? And, you know, do you have some kind of a step-by-step -step process that you walk them through? 100%. So I work very closely, as I mentioned, with Stacey Kelly, our national business growth manager. So my team are the ones that go and bring the officers on board. And we've got a great synergy with what we call our business growth managers, who are the franchise managers. So there is an onboarding process as part of that. We've got a whole Microsoft Teams Trello board set up with everything, which means board members call them, I call them. You know, there's a whole process we follow. And then we work out, and it's not black and white, Sam, like some officers have been in operation for 20 years, changing over. Some of them are new people starting off. So we have to manipulate it and massage it how we need to. But we have a step-by-step -step process. And as I said, part of that, we do have a lot of events, training, conventions, all that kind of stuff that we get them along to that as well. But we also sit down with them and work out, what's your timeline? You know, do you need to be, and we've had officers come to us saying, we need to be open in, we had one earlier this year in 13 days, which is not ideal for us, but we did it. And everyone in the head office from our online team to our marketing team, design team, you know, all that got together and jumped and did what they need to do. Most people have a six to eight week window and we sort of plot out a plan for them so that they can still run their business without worrying about, you know, everything else happening, you know, because you've still got to run your business and make a dollar. So, you know, when you're making this change, you need to have that plan set out. And we have a full-fledged induction program which involves my team as well as, you know, Stacey's business growth team as well. 
Yeah, because it's important to make people feel like part of the family. Like people these days, they talk about, you know, the wow experience because you never get another shot at making that first impression, do you? No, and that's why we try and get our, uh, each of our states has what's called a regional council as well. So they're members that get together and discuss what's going on with the network, what we can do in each state. And then the chairman of that goes on the board and we try and get them involved in bringing a new member, introducing them and saying, hey, you know, I'm a member as well. I've got an office here in Queensland or New South Wales, wherever it is, or Victoria. And if you need anything, feel free to reach out. We're here to help. And that just sort of, I suppose, appeases them a bit too and gives them a bit of peace of mind to say, hey, I've made the right decision and I've actually got people that I can call as well. What's a common leadership mistake you see real estate professionals making? And can you give us one thing or one piece of advice that listeners should absolutely avoid? Okay, I've got a couple here for you and it's very simple. So one thing that I always do is I would never ask anyone that's part of the recruitment or part of my team to do something that I wouldn't do. As a leader, I think I've got to set the example. So I'm out there doing appointments, I'm making calls, I talk to people, I'm representing the brand as I think they should be doing it as well. And I think that's how leaders should lead. They should lead by example. A lot of times you'll find people will get into leadership roles and I've seen this in the past and they think they've made it. You know, I've been in real estate, I've been in this you know, role 15 and a half years at the corporate office. I've been in real estate since I was 10 years old. I still don't claim that I know everything about real estate. And there'll be people that have been, you know, even my old man at 77, 78 would not claim that he knows everything in real estate. You've got to be constantly learning. And I think the issue you find sometimes with some leaders is I think once they get to the top of the tower, and this is a piece of advice I got given, once you get to the top of the tower, your job is not finished, your job is only just started. And I think that's the issue that a lot of leaders, that when they fail, is they think they've got to the top and they can kick back, put their feet up, and all the hard work's done. It's the other way around. Once you are a leader, you actually have to work even harder to prove why you should be there and lead the team in a proper manner. Yeah, 100% agree with that. I used to think the same thing. I used to think that if I got to a leadership position, my life would become easier. No. (laughs) No, exactly. And that's why it's hard to do, Sam. That's why not many people can do it because the work is not done once you get there. The work has only just started. Yeah, absolutely. So the last couple of years have been challenging and we've all had to embrace change and innovate a lot. How do you empower agents in your group to do that? Yeah, it's a tough one because the last couple of years has been interesting because funny enough, as much as the COVID restrictions, and I still hate talking about COVID because I feel like we're so past it now, you know, real estate was still a good industry to be in. It was one of the ones that actually made a lot of money and we did very well. And coming out of that, it's been a little bit different. The market has changed across the country. There was a correction that needed to be had. Look, we get our members heavily involved in everything we do, from leadership training to in-house training, that kind of stuff, and we try and empower them that way. We run a number of functions for our younger generation too, much to the disgust a lot of times of some of our senior principals, but we want to get the younger people involved as well because a lot of people spent, you know, you're fortunate enough in Queensland, but for those people that I know very well in Victoria, they were locked down for like two years. So there's sort of been a switch in mentality. So we're trying to get people back out there get them back in front of people and sort of, you know, in that sense, that's probably the best way I can say it. Yeah, absolutely. So if you could go back in time to when you first became a leader, what's one thing that you'd tell your younger self? What's a lesson learned? Think before you speak. And the one thing I I used to be very abrasive and I've learned this and I thank Ray Ellis, our CEO, for mentoring me over the period of time because I used to just blurt out whatever was in my mind. Now, I take the time to think about what I'm doing, what I'm saying, how is this going to affect, how is this going to resonate on myself, how is this going to resonate on the network itself. But I used to just be blah, 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 and, you know, whatever came out, came out. And I've learned, you know, over the period of time that hang on a second, take a step back. You've got time to answer this. You've got time to, you know, come back with something. And I think 
Yeah, but that's just a lesson you learn, you know, as a younger person as you're working your way through. You know, I become more empathetic. We do a lot of personal development training with our team. We've done disc profiling, all that kind of stuff. You know, I'm a very much deep down salesperson. If you've ever done disc profiling, I am 100% D. I'm just bang, 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 go, go, go. What I learned and something that took me some time to do is that everyone in the team that I work with is a different personality. And so my personality sometimes is a square peg trying to get into a round hole of one of my team members and I've got to work out how to better do that. So whether that's chatting to those guys about what's happening in their personal life and their sport and this, that, the other outside of work before I go, right, now I need this. Whereas I've got other team members that I can go, right, hey, I need bang, bang, bang. And they go, great, Matt, thanks, see you later. And they're done. So that was something I had to learn from a leader's point of view that everyone has different personalities and they may take the way I lead people or manage them maybe being a little bit abrupt, but I've just got that much going on. So I've had to learn how to, it's not manipulate, it's how to work in with your team members and, and what their expectations are moving forward. Like if it's a conversation for five minutes about what's happening with their life and everything before you do work, great, that's it. And I really enjoy that because you get to see an insight into, you know, my guy in WA studying at the moment and I finished an MBA a couple of years ago. So we talk about trying to fit all that into everything as well. You know, I talked to one of our guys up in Queensland about cricket all the time. So, you know, you've got those little ins and outs, whereas before I never really did that. I sort of just went into work mode and that's sort of that empathetic side that you've got to sometimes learn. Some people have it. I personally didn't, but I've learned it over the years. So, Yeah, I feel like I can relate to that too. I remember, you know, my younger self was enthusiastic about change and just used to say it enthusiastically all the time. But a lot of people get freaked out by that. <laughs> so. Yeah. So I've since curbed my enthusiasm. I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. But anyway, looking ahead, what are your goals for the first national network and growth? What gets you excited about the future of the industry? I mean, the industry, I've always loved it because it doesn't matter where you've come from, what your education level is, anything like that. There is a role to be played in the real estate industry. And that's what I love, the diverse amount across the industry. I think it is very much changing. You've got the likes of some of the other brands where people can work from home a lot more now, things like that, the technology. But what I feel is going to happen in the industry, and it's already happening now, and this is where the good agents are getting better, is it's become less of a transactional industry, I believe. Like it used to just be, all right, the deal's done, got the commission, move on to the next one. You look at the top operators across all networks and not just ours, they are heavily involved in the community. They're giving back, whether it's charities, football clubs, local schools, it's all the same. It's in my area, it's everywhere. And I feel that real estate, albeit at the very bottom echelon of, you know, used car sales, people, I feel that we are heading up the chain. I really feel that we're being harshly done by over the years. You know, I still don't think we should be that low. I think that the real estate industry will slowly move its way up that chain because these people are doing stuff in the communities and actually providing value for people. So it's not just I've sold you a house and I've got the commission and see you later, move on. It's you're getting more involved with these people on a day-to-day basis. And that excites me about the industry because I feel like it's been harshly done by over the years and that's where the change is coming and the good will only get better. And if you're not doing stuff like that, that is something that you need to look at moving forward because if you want to become a leader in your respective areas, you need to be giving back to the community. And that's probably something that came out of COVID too. It probably accelerated a little bit. And that excites me about what's happening there. In relation to what we're doing from a First National point of view, I'm very excited. We brought some new people into the team, a couple more just recently. I'm very excited by what our offering is. 
For me, it's more about still, and you hit the nail on the head earlier, you didn't realize we weren't a franchise. It is just educating people out there that we're not a franchise, that we do offer, you know, just as much support and products and service offering as everyone else out there. And recently, funnily enough, we had someone join us and they were going to join another brand because they couldn't fathom that for only the small amount of money they were going to pay us, we would actually have anything behind us of substance. And when they went and found out and we took them to one of our existing offices and showed them all, they, they couldn't believe it. So for me, it's about educating everyone out there that we are someone you should talk to. We are a, a brand that's across Australia, New Zealand, Vanuatu, hopefully Fiji soon, Yumiya as well. And we do you know, want to partner with businesses more so than anything else. And that's sort of what excites me that we're slowly, it's a long, slow burn, but that's sort of my goal and what excites me over the next couple of years about what we're doing at First National. Yeah, it's, I think 2024 is set to be a much better year for everyone too. Like, I mean, this has been a challenging year, but, you know, like I'm hearing nothing but positivity out there at the moment. So that's really, really good. There will be an interest rate rise next week. I can guarantee you that. So on the beginning of November, but that may start over. But I think we're in for a good ride next year. Yeah. Now, this question is not officially on the program, but it is sort of like a November, December question I start asking people, which is, if I was wearing a red suit and heading down the chimney at your place, what would you like to see Santa put under your Christmas tree? And not that I'm Santa, by the way, but have you been naughty or nice? Hopefully not a stocking full of coal. Look, to be honest, Christmas is not about me anymore. I've got two young kids, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, so Christmas for us is about them. So I'd like to see, obviously, a lot of cool little presents and gifts on there because there's nothing that lights up my day more than my son and my daughter, you know, the smile on their face. So it may seem a little bit sappy, but, you know, I'm old enough now that I've moved past the idea of presents and everything, just watching my kids wake up on Christmas Day and, and having a whole lot of presents and dressing up in their Christmas pyjamas and the cookies and the beer that Santa's been left has been, well, it's always going to be drunk and eaten, of course. <laughs> but yeah, just enough presents for them as long as they're happy and, you know, as long as they're safe and getting to see all my family and my extended family over that period of time. Yeah. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on to Elevate and sharing some of your wisdom and knowledge with us. It's been built up over such a long period of time. I'm sure everyone got a whole lot of great takeaways out of that. But if there was one thing that you'd like to leave everyone with, what would it be? The only stupid question is the one that's not asked. It's a mantra that I live by and I always say that and that's how I learn and that's how you will learn. So, you know, there are plenty of people out there willing to give you the information, give you the knowledge. If you're just starting out, you don't know. The only stupid question is the one that's not asked. And I always use that. And I still ask stupid questions too all the time because I want to know the answer. So, you know, if you're out there, you're wanting to learn, don't forget that, you know, you're never too old to learn and you should always be improving yourself. So only stupid question is the one that's not asked. Great answer. Matthew Harvey, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elevate podcast. With thanks to Connect Now. To stay in touch with all things Elite Agent, sign up for our daily newsletter, The Brief, at eliteagent.com slash subscribe. 